0: Hello again. This is The Laughing Satirist with The Flipper Guy, a satire of house flipping, immigration enforcement, and Freudian psychology. Or maybe it's about something else we have difficulty naming. If I knew some way we could communicate, I'd invite your thoughts. Now, by the way, there is a technical glitch in this podcast. I can only record 30 minutes at a time, And then the podcast stops. This podcast takes altogether about 35 minutes. So when we reach the point where the recording stops, I'll start another podcast labeled episode 19.5 with the last few minutes of the story. The Flipper Guy. It wasn't my idea to do a teardown on Livingston Circle. A moment's delay can cost the work of a lifetime, and I had put all my capital into this one project. So when Butch Siegel, my contractor, said it was the only way to go, I went with it. All the webinars agree you got to have guts to flip houses. Livingston Circle was the best address in town an enclave of Tudor, federal, and colonial homes off the main artery through the most exclusive residential area in the city. My usual properties were foreclosures and distress sales. On my few days off, I would drive through the better parts of town, looking at houses and dreaming about making that one big flip that would mark me as a player. If I found the right property, I might even be featured on Nick Pendleton's Flip It or Lose It TV show. Every week, millions of people watched as great and sometimes would-be great flippers picked their properties, dodged building inspectors and tax collectors, and ended up with unbelievable profits or a ride downtown in a squad car. The big Tudor looked as if it had been transported beam by beam from England to dominate the neighborhood. All the homes on Livingston Circle had beautiful gardens, but this was brilliant, with a rose garden and flowers that lit up the dark old house like a light show. I had been watching the property from the death of the last occupant's wife through his internment in a psychiatric hospital and contacted the heirs for a private sale without a real estate agent's fees, but I'd never been inside. When I went to evaluate the property with Butch, we anticipated some repainting, refinishing, maybe re-plumbing old bathrooms and a new kitchen. It was a beautiful June morning with sweet fresh air that smelled like the California coast. My car was in the shop again, and Butch's beat up four by four wasn't the best way to impress my new neighbors. I wondered if I should have worn something besides my old khakis, golf shirt, and sneakers. But then Butch would have stood out even more in the ragged t-shirt and jeans he wore on every job. Being a hundred pounds overweight did not help his personal appearance either. As we pulled into the driveway, I saw a man pruning the roses in the side yard. Hello, I called. Are you the gardener? Only about five feet tall, he was wearing a faded shirt and colorless trousers so short that his calves and bare feet stuck out the bottoms. Everything about him was foreign. Straight black hair, ochre skin, and black eyes that stared back unwavering and unemotional, as if he were returning the glance of a passing beast. Butch, who was fluent in broken Spanish, said something to him. The man just stared back as if words were as worthless as life. I don't know why people here hire illegal aliens, Butch said. They can get you into a world of shit. I opened the door, and the smell of the damp old house enveloped us. Smells like somebody died, Butch said. Leaving the door open, we followed the entrance hall to the living room. The blinds were down, and it took a few seconds for my eyes to adjust from the sunshine. Slowly, the outline of the room came into focus, and then the furniture. The sellers had been so anxious to get rid of the property that they hadn't even bothered to take the furniture away. Then I saw them, men, women, and children of all ages, dressed in the same colorless shirts and trousers and smocks, squatting along the walls, clustered on the old overstuffed chairs, and crowded together on the Davenports, staring at us with with the same black, emotionless eyes. None was over five feet tall. The old man must have been taking in boarders, Butch said. How do we get rid of them, I asked. Out of here, Butch shouted, waving his arms. Vamoos muchachos. Not one of them moved. You'll have to evict them, Larry, Butch said. I don't have the time, I replied. I'm calling the cops. The only sound was our raised voices. They just sat on the furniture or squatted along the walls watching us. We went outside the call. The dispatcher said they'd have a car there right away. It was the first time they'd had a call from Livington Circle in years. While we were waiting, a tall man in his 60s wearing a dark blue jogging suit and a Yale cap came up to introduce himself. Are you our new neighbor, he asked, eyes darting between me and the Donang 1969 tattoo on Siegel's left forearm. We're going to rehab it, I replied. Our conversation was ended by sirens before we could say anything more. Two patrol cars turned into the driveway, parking in Butch's four by four. Oh shit, Butch said. Two heavy heavy-set officers climbed out of the first cruiser, elaborately adjusted their gun belts and hats, and came up the steps to the porch. The officers in the second cruiser stayed in their car to block stragglers from escaping. "'Understand you got some squatters,' one of the officers said to me, resting one hand on his holster. "'Come on in,' I replied, opening the door. It took a few seconds for their eyes to adjust to the dark, and to see the extent of the problem. Holy shit, the first one said. This job is beyond our jurisdiction, mister. I'm calling the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Let's not make it a federal case, I protested. You got an invasion from Guatemala and you aren't calling INS? They'll give you five years for hiding illegal immigrants, the officer said. We followed them outside to make their call. I'm getting out of here, Butch whispered to me, taking out his phone. I can't have my guys around when INS arrives. INS says not to let any of them get away before they arrive, the officer reported. He and his partner returned to their car and turned on the engine and the air conditioning to wait. A lot of action your first day on the job, the jogger remarked. This was probably the first time anyone on Livingston circle had seen the large green INS buses, preceded and followed by green cars with sirens and flashing lights. Butch pulled his Vietnam veteran cap down over his face and retreated to his 4x4 to smoke cigarettes. The gardener still stood by his roses, watching. What you got for us, buddy? A big man in a green uniform and white Stetson hat said to me, while other agents piled out of the cars and fanned out around the house. I'm not sure, officer. I just bought this house and it's full of... I pointed at the gardener. One of the agents spoke to the gardener in Spanish and pointed to the bus. The gardener didn't move. He probably doesn't speak Spanish, the man with the Stetson explained. Once we get them downtown, we'll find someone who knows their dialect. The agent walked the gardener to the bus. He climbed in without looking back. Is that Butch Siegel, the man with the sets and ass, peering into the 4x4? Do you know him? I wondered, afraid to hear the answer. He's on our Raiders scope. Now, let's see inside. He followed me up the steps into the house with two of the other agents behind us. I'm calling for backup was all he could say when he saw the living room. It took two runs by four buses to get them all out of the house. They were everywhere. Bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchen, basement, attic, even the crawl space under the garage. By noon, half the neighborhood and TV trucks from all three local stations were crowded around the old Tudor. Without speaking a word, the little people walked out of the house, down the drive, and climbed into the buses. None of them had shoes, and they didn't seem to know what to do with the bottled water and granola bars the agents offered them. We got our quota for the next six months, the agent with the Stetson said as the last bus pulled away. You got a card, buddy? You could be in line for some kind of reward. We exchanged cards. He had the INS crest in gold and said, TJ, Tex Lobber, agent in charge. Mine only said, Larry the flipper guy and gave the number of my answering machine. In my business, there are lots of calls you don't want to return. You made my day, partner, Tex said, slapping my shoulder. Call me if you get any more. So the next time I made the evening news, I was standing on the porch of my latest acquisition handing my card to a beaming INS agent and trying to explain that I didn't know anything about it until I opened the front door. When the crowd finally cleared, I discovered that Butch had gotten his 4x4 out of the drive in the confusion, leaving me stranded. It cost me $30 for a cab to the garage to pick up my car, but by the time I got there, the garage was closed. The place is a dump, Butch said as we toured the old Tudor the next morning. Every room had dry rot. The toilets had leaked for so long, the plaster ceilings below had cracked and collapsed, and the baseboards and paneling were coated with mold. Part of the roof was gone, worn away by a branch from a large oak tree. Only the meticulously tended gardens gave it an hour of life. I was wondering who was keeping them now the gardener was in custody, when Butch turned to face me. Only one thing to do with a dump like this, Larry, he said. Tear it down. It hit me like one of those flashes you get in the middle of the night, when you've had too much to drink. I didn't budget for a tear down. I said, afraid to let him know how little cash I had left. Architects don't come cheap in Livingston Circle. Don't worry he replied. My guys will have it down in a day, and I'll find some plans on the internet. We'll be on the market by the end of the summer. By mid-morning, Butch had corralled a bulldozer to knock down the house and one of those huge metal containers like a railroad coal car to put in the driveway for the pieces. Several neighbors dropped by the watch. You have a permit for this, the man in the jogging suit said as we watched Butch's crew get started. The office takes care of the details, I replied. We had to stop work at nightfall when a fine haze of plaster dust and mold spores had settled over the neighborhood, and the beautiful gardens had been crushed under the bulldozer's treads. Only a gazebo remained at the back of the lot, overlooking the destruction. It took us another two days to get all the debris and broken glass and pieces of furniture out of the basement. Butch thought we could use the original foundation. What about the plans for the new house, I wondered. No problem, he said. I'll adjust them on the computer to fit the foundation. Next morning, we were standing beside the foundation with two guys from Butch's crew when the man in the jogging suit joined us. The basement was empty, except for one of those old double wash tubs along one wall, and a square steel plate in the center. Butch's men dropped down to lift them out. I called the city, the jogger said. A building inspector is on his way out to look at your plans. He had to move quickly to get out of the way of the wash tub, as the crew boosted it over the edge. Got to be careful around a construction site, Bud, Butch said helpfully. Senior Siegel, one of the men called, followed by a string of excited words in Spanish. I better get down there, Butch said. His men had pushed the steel plate aside, uncovering a circular hole in the floor, about two feet in diameter. Siegel sat on the foundation and lowered his legs over the edge until his men grabbed him and lowered him down. I don't believe it, he said, bending over the hole. It's got ladder rungs on the side. Come here, you guys, I called to his crew. Help me get down there. Sure enough, in the middle of the basement was a perfectly round hole with rungs on the side. It looked as if someone had driven a steel pipe straight down into the earth. Butch shined the reading light on his phone into the blackness. It lit up the cylinder for a few feet, before it descended into darkness again. Here, Butch said, dropping a piece of cement into the hole. For several seconds, there was no sound, and then a faraway clunk as it bounced off a rug, and then the silence again. The building inspectors here, the jogger called from the rim. Shit, said Butch. Come on, Gonzalez, boost me up. He stood facing the wall while each of his men took one leg and shoved him up over the edge. It was my turn next. I don't think we looked very professional, trying to stand up without toppling over backwards into the basement. Have you submitted your plans to the city? The inspector began. This was no ordinary inspector. He wore a short sleeve white shirt and tie and a name badge that said, Chief Inspector. People on Livingston Circle had the clout to go right to the top. I'll call the office, I said, taking out my phone and walking far enough away that he couldn't hear what I was saying. Maybe you should call INS again, too, the jogger said. They didn't get all of them. All my guys got green cards, Butch said angrily. I mean them, he said, pointing to the gazebo at the back of the lot where two small men in colorless shirts and trousers were silently watching us. So I called Tex, and he greeted me like a long-lost friend. How you doing, partner, he cried, loud enough for the chief inspector to hear. We have some stragglers, I said. How many, he asked. Just two this time, I replied. See you in 15, buddy, he called. While we were waiting, Butch's men climbed out of the basement. The chief inspector had that look they get when they think they're going to shut you down for good. The look changed when agent in charge, Tex Lobber, arrived in a green car with siren blaring and pumped my hand as if we had just struck oil. Washington's not going to believe this, Larry, he said. Another agent went across the lawn for the two men in the gazebo. Senior Siegel, one of Butch's men, interrupted, trying to get his attention. You got a problem, amigo? Tex asked him. The man just pointed to the basement. A black-haired woman in a smock had climbed out of the hole and was turning around to help two small children up. Now we know where they're coming from, Tex exclaimed, taking out his phone to call for backup. About that building permit, the Chief Building Inspector interrupted us. Sorry, bud, Agent in Charge Lauber said. This is federal jurisdiction. Within minutes, the Chief Building Inspector and the jogger were separated from us by green INS tape, and Tex and another agent were shining a flashlight into the hole. Soon, a green INS truck arrived, bringing a ladder to get the immigrants out of the basement a winch with a large roll of line, and something that looked like a little television screen. As soon as the woman and her children were up, the man with the winch and little screen climbed down the ladder. I followed to watch him set up his rig and lower a camera on a wire into the hole. We could see what was happening on the little screen. For over an hour, the camera lit up rung after rung as it descended. Turn it around, Louis, so we can see the other side, Tex said to the operator. Not even a seam, the operator said amazed. Who makes casing like this? At about 3,000 feet, the signal started to break up. It's no good, sir, the operator reported. What's the problem, Tex demanded. Something in the soil is interfering with the signal. "Shit," Tex said, and called Washington again. Yes, sir, he said, and turned away to make another call to his office. We got to get to the bottom of this, Tex said, and paused. We're sending a man down. By the time they had winched up the camera, a man in a camouflage uniform and harness with a lamp on his helmet and an M-16 had joined us. When he was all rigged up, he started to climb into the hole and stopped. With his harness, extra clips of ammunition, and the M-16, he was too big to fit. "'What about leaving the extra ammunition and the Sea Rats up here, sir?' he asked. "'Can't do it, son,' Tex replied. "'They're regulation.'" Before long, a young woman arrived, wearing the same military-style uniform, but considerably smaller. "'Just take your time going down, Annie,' Tex instructed her. One jerk on the line means I'm okay. Two jerks, get my ass out. What about the radio link, she asked, tapping the speaker on her helmet. You can use that, too, as long as it works. Soon she was over the edge, and the line from the winch was rolling out behind her. See anything, Tex said, into the handset every few minutes. Nothing, sir. More minutes would go by, and the report was always, nothing, sir. She's at 3,000 feet, the operator reported. The signal's breaking up, sir. Jerk her son, Tex said, and the operator tugged once on the line. She tugged back once. Passing 5,000 feet, the operator said. How deep can it be, another agent asked. Suddenly the winch jerked twice. She's in trouble, sir, the operator called. Get her out of there, Tex cried. It took the longest minutes of my life for them to winch her up. Officer down, Tex said into his phone, as they hauled her out of the hole and laid her on the ground. In seconds, they had her helmet and harness and the extra ammunition off, but she just lay on the basement floor, staring up at the sky, panting. Where's it hurt, girl, Tex asked, kneeling beside her. She didn't reply. Hey, Bobby, Tex said to another agent wasn't her hair black? Yes, sir. Annie's hair was white and she had the colorless complexion of the drowned. Tex didn't speak to her again. He was on the phone to Washington. What's going on? I asked after he hung up. This is at the level of the assistant secretary, he said, so excited he could barely speak. We're going to plug the hole. The emergency squad lowered a cot into the basement for Annie and I climbed up the ladder to see them off. The yard outside the green tape was filled with TV crews and neighbors, but Butch and his crew were gone. Fortunately, my car was out of the shop this time, but I couldn't get through the crowd. I stayed by the foundation to be away from the reporters. The reporters were getting restless, shouting for information, when a green cement truck with the INS crest on the drum pulled into the drive. Waving reporters and onlookers aside, agents cut the green tape so it could drive to the edge of the basement. Next, they dragged connecting chutes from the cement drum to the hole. Tex directed the entire operation. Let it roll, he cried. As the drum turned, cement ran down the chutes into the hole. What are you doing, one of the reporters called over the noise. We have to secure the border, Tex replied. That statement was soon in every headline and immigration blog in the country. And a nation that had never feared an attack from underground was quivering in terror. Where was the army? Where was the navy? The air force? The marines? Was cement our only weapon against the threat from below? After an hour, the truck pulled away, empty. The hole was still open. Get another truck, Tex said into his phone, and for the rest of the afternoon, truck after truck drove up to the foundation, discharged its load, and drove away. As darkness was falling and Klieg lights were lighting up the yard, someone called from the basement, it's holding. The agents whooped and shouted as if they had turned back a Comanche charge. Exhausted, they climbed out of the basement, shook hands and slapped backs with Tex, and headed for their cars. What's going on, the reporters screamed. The Secretary of Homeland Security will be making an announcement at 9 p.m. from Washington, Tex said. Me and my boys are off duty. I followed them to their cars. By 9 p.m., I had had two beers, ordered a pizza, and had the TV turned on for the special announcement from Washington. By 9.10, the commentator was asking why the delay, and at 10, I turned off the TV. Oh, what the hell, I thought, and went to bed. Text called just as I was going to sleep. The plug slipped, he reported. We have to go back to your property tomorrow with some stuff we're using for the wall in Mexico that is sure to hold. Driving to the site the next morning, I didn't listen to the news. Livingston Circle was so crowded, I had the park on the side across from my teardown and growth through backyards to reach it. Tex and his agents were holding back the crowd and directing cement truck after cement truck to the basement. It's got plastic in it, he said to explain the new mixture. By early afternoon, the plug was holding. It would take an atom bomb to get that out, Tex said proudly. The secretary held his press conference in time for the 6 o'clock news, and an anguished nation shivered with relief to know that it was safe from underground invaders. By the 11 o'clock news, the city was back to worrying about how many games this baseball team could lose before the manager was fired, and Larry the Flipper was wondering who would ever loan him the money to build on the worst lot in the country. I shouldn't have worried. A six-pack into another sleepless night, the answering machine rang. Hey, Larry man, this is Nick Pendleton from Flip It or Lose It. We want to be part of your project. Call me. He left a number, but I'd stop listening. A flip on his show would make my career. You've probably seen the show, so I don't have to tell you about it here. With a seven-figure loan from Nick and plans for from award-winning architect D'Artagnan Frond, a hole in the ground anchored by 17 tons of plastic cement was transformed into the most desirable property on Livingston Circle. The work was finished and the house was staged for the final shooting in September, and I sold it for over five million dollars in early October after a bidding war you wouldn't believe. So I was finally a player, with the capital to take on whatever new project I wanted. To celebrate, I bought myself a condo with a Riverview for cash. The evening I moved in, I switched from beer to bourbon. When you run with the big boys, you have to drink like the big boys. Sitting out on the deck in a lawn chair with a bottle and a glass of ice, I was finally at peace. So many people were calling with new projects that I had to spend an hour every morning checking my voicemails. So when I pushed back the sliding door to go inside after the sun was down, I thought it was the booze. A man and a woman with straight black hair and colorless clothes were sitting on my new sofa watching me. They didn't get up. They didn't move. They didn't blink. At first, I was afraid I would startle them if I moved but they just stared at me. I left the bottle and the glass in the kitchen and went to bed. When I woke up in the middle of the night to take a leak, they were squatting on the floor beside my dresser, watching. I've had recurrent dreams before. The only way to shake them is to get up, go to the bathroom, get back into bed, and hope that you've broken the loop. After a long while, I got back to sleep, but the answering machine started again around 7 a.m. It was in the living room, far enough away that I couldn't hear what the callers were saying, but close enough that I could sense the tension in their voices. I got up when I heard Nick Pendleton. Haven't you heard what happened, he said when I returned this call? I was going to say they're back, but I decided it was better for him to tell it his own way. Our house collapsed last night. All that's left is a pile of junk sticking out of the basement. Lucky we sold it when we did, Nick, I replied, relieved that he didn't know the little people were back. I told you we shouldn't use Butch Siegel for the drywall, and Pendleton began, looking for a scapegoat. Butch didn't do this, I said. Then who the hell did, he demanded. We have to find someone for our lawyers to blame it on. I think I am the only person who has ever hung up on Nick Pendleton. He called back a dozen times. Every time the message was the same. Call me, you asshole. Late in the afternoon, I had a message from Tex. The building inspectors had reached the bottom of the debris. I knew what he was going to say next. The plug slipped again last night, he said. It created a vacuum that sucked the house down with it. At least the buyer hadn't moved in yet, I said to sound hopeful. Tex was not comforted. Washington wants me to pour kerosene down the hole the way you do with ground wasps. Might work, I agreed. I don't know why the plug failed.